Within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. It's July 14th, 14 juillet, and we're here in Berkeley, California, looking into the Ten Grounds chapter of the Flower Garland Sutra. We're on the third ground, talking about bodhisattvas and how they practice their particular practices, and... We're going to start, as we usually do, by chanting the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. So please turn to that front cover of your text that you should have in front of you. And if you don't, you need to get one. Um, Anybody not have a sutra text? Anybody got one? Uh, Yeah, there's Dashing Basher. Can you? There we go. He's got them in the back here. Thank you so much. Gets out a full lotus there. One over here, Richard, could use one. Got one? Got it? Phil's got one? Good. Okay. Thank you.
Okay, we have uh, a couple empty seats. Uh, please fill up those seats first, if you don't mind. Don't be shy. Please turn, if you will, to the uh, text, page 60 and 61. Page 60 and 61. I don't know if you all can see, maybe just turn around and look at the stained glass shadows on the, the southern wall here. Um, I, I get to watch the light show as I lecture. And this is uh, early July, so actually it's mid-July now. So this is at its peak and uh, starts about late April and May. And this is exactly due west and the sun sets over the Golden Gate Bridge and those shadows come in for about half an hour, just about horizontal. And our bodhisattvas and dragons get uh, interpreted through colored glass here on the back wall. It's quite marvelous. You can imagine what it's like if you can actually see the light of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the Avatamsaka assembly. How, If this is worldly light that my eyes can see when when the triple jewel comes to shed their light, it must be quite marvelous. All right. We are on the third paragraph that begins Fodzi Shi Pusa Jutsu Faguangdi. And I'm going to take a bigger bite tonight of the text, so we're going to go all the way down to the bottom. Okay, if you'd like to, please put your palms together and I'll give you a line and you give it back to me. Fodzi shi pusa jutsu faguangdi shi I'm sorry, my mistake here, try again. Jutsu fa fa try again. Shi pusa jutsu faguangdi Shu 千以乃有他佛身心恭敬尊重衣服饮食一切自生西西风时一一供养一一供养一切众生一切众生以此善根毁向阿耨多罗毁向阿耨多罗三藐三菩提三藐三菩提与其佛所与其佛所恭敬听法
Okay. Over to the right. Um, let's do it this way. Let's read it all together in unison. Okay, we're going to go over to page 61 to the English now and start with Disciples of the Buddha. And take a nice even breath and let, this, let the silences in between the sentences correspond with your breathing. So we're all uh, as a nice, relaxed, flowing sound. Here we go. Disciples of the Buddha, when this bodhisattva dwells upon this ground of emitting light, because of the power of his vows, he comes to see many Buddhas. That is, he sees many hundreds of Buddhas, sees many thousands of Buddhas, sees many hundreds of thousands of Buddhas, up to and including seeing many hundreds of thousands of millions of Nayutas of Buddhas. He reveres and honors them completely with a vast and great mind and a profound mind, attends upon and makes offerings to them. He offers up all the necessities of life, clothing, food and drink, bedding and medicines. He also makes offerings to all the multitudes of the Sangha, and he transfers those good roots to Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. In the presence of those Buddhas, he reverently listens to the Dharma, Having heard it, he accepts and holds it and cultivates it according to his power. Right. So this chapter is called The Ten Grounds. There are ten of these sections, and this is the third one. And we're coming to the end of the third one. We'll know that we're really close to the end when we get to the verses, which repeat what the text said, the prose said, and you'll notice that happens on page 67. We get to the verses, and the verses are restatements of the earlier prose part. So here's our third ground bodhisattva. And let me remind everybody that this is gender neutral. This could be a man, it could be a woman, it could be a non-human. Um, bodhisattvas are not certainly not limited to human form. And this bodhisattva says... This bodhisattva dwells upon this ground of emitting light. Dwells is a funny word to choose here. Uh, you could say stays or lives would be just as good. When this bodhisattva lives here, when this bodhisattva uh, rests or uh, pauses in the third stage because it's, he's on a journey, he's going to the tenth ground, tenth stage, and then he goes on beyond that to Buddhahood. So, zhu is the word that means to live. When you live somewhere, zhu zai when you stay here, when you rest here, when you, sometimes we say abide, but abide is kind of a Shakespearean word. Dwell uh, is probably not the best choice, and now that we're uh, retranslating a lot of the Abhatamsaka, we're kind of switching every time it says well, we're bringing it up to words that people actually say, such as stay or live, inhabit. When the bodhisattva lives in to this third ground, because of the power, the strength of his vows, he sees many Buddhas. Okay, 
the key, the key idea here is that it's vows that make Buddhas become visible. What's the connection? What's a vow and why does that make Buddhas visible? That's an interesting, interesting question. A vow, as we know, vows are really central to the, the life of a bodhisattva. Bodhisattvas come from their vows and their practices. That's what makes a bodhisattva different from, let's say, another kind of sage, like an arhat, or a, a solitary Buddha are vows that a bodhisattva makes. People used to say that it was exactly Master Shrenhua's vows that made him uh, such a good teacher. And there are stories. If you read our teacher's biography back when he was in Manchuria, these are, some of these stories are um, full of what um, the scientific West would call magic, magical elements. Um, but that's, it's magic only if we have to uh, reduce everything to measurement. Science is very good at measuring things, and that's a lot of the, the value that science has is because it, it can establish standards. This is, we know what, uh, what a degree is. We know what uh, Fahrenheit is. We know what Celsius is. Um, Taiwan these days is having a heat wave. It's 38 Celsius in Taiwan recently, which is something like 110 Fahrenheit, right? Close. So that's what science does, is it measures things, and that's good. But to take one step to the left or to the right, uh, let's say science measures the speed of light. Well, if you ask the question, what's light? Suddenly science has to go, it's a particle or a wave, and it, we need it. You know, science can't tell you what light is. They can describe it, name it, measure it, but it's still magic in the end. What about gravity? Why is gravity the thing, right? This will drop down 100 times out of 100 because of gravity. But what is gravity? Well, measure it, but it's still magic. And so I want to expand our understanding of what's possible and what's allowable and let those categories be one way of measuring, but not the only game in town. So when we have uh, Master Shrenhua saying, yes, the foxes, the fox spirits came to take refuge with me, and I asked why, and they said it's because of my vows. We want to take refuge with you because of your vows. We go, gee, I've never heard of fox spirits taking refuge with anybody and if it's the teacher's vows that make him the teacher they want okay I've now expanded my knowledge of what's possible right? that I'm happier with than simply dismissing it out of hand saying fox spirits don't ask teachers to take refuge right? only in fairy tales in comic books in ancient fiction and legends well what do we know? Only what science can measure? If that's the case, then our knowledge is pretty slim because what we don't know outnumbers what we do know by a huge factor, including the things that we take for granted. Gravity, light, right? temperature. We don't know what it is, but we can describe it. So it's the case that 
the bodhisattva's vows, because of the bodhisattva's vows, he gets to see many Buddhas. She gets to see many Buddhas. Okay, so what's the connection? Why do vows allow you to see Buddhas? If you don't make vows, do you not see Buddhas? Mm, honestly, I don't know. I can't tell you whether that's true or not because I don't see Buddhas. Um, but the sutra says, because of vows, the strength of these bodhisattvas' vows, they get to see many Buddhas. Um, what would a vow be like? Well, living beings are numberless. Even so, I vow to save them all. I vow to bring living beings to a place of wisdom, out of ignorance. I vow to take beings out of birth and death to a place where that stops, where birth and death comes to. That's a vow, right? And that's considered one of the standard four bodhisattvas vows. Sentient beings are infinite. How many are there? They don't end. But you know what? I'm going to save them all, says the bodhisattva. That's impossible. Right? There's a contradiction right in the middle of that vow. And yet the bodhisattva says, right, tell me about it. I'm still going to do it. How long will it take me? Mm, put your watch in the drawer. Take your calendar off the wall. Don't wait for the time when it's over. When you save the last one, just start saving living beings. So that's the way bodhisattvas do it. And with that kind of resizing of your mind... Buddhas are visible. Buddhas are not not here, according to the teaching. It's not the case that Buddhas are gone and then they show up. right? It's not that the Buddhas came back from vacation and the Buddhas came knocking on your door suddenly. No. You made a vow, we like you now. We'll, we'll come and see you, pay a call. No. It's the case that Buddhas are always there, but our limited consciousness keeps us in the realm of duality, where there's me and you where there's good and bad, where there's likes and dislikes. In that realm, we don't see the Buddhas because we're too busy using the mind to slice the world into smaller and smaller pieces. Consciousness has the function of going chop, 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 chop. They call it the funbia xin, the discriminating mind. And the Chinese characters for funbia both have a knife in them. You chop. Funbia mind, the consciousness mind, goes chop, 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 chop. That's very useful. If you are crunching numbers, that's very useful. If you are editing pictures in Photoshop, we only get to edit digital files because somebody, when they programmed the computer, was really good at chopping things into tiny pieces. Eight bits make a byte, right? How many bytes in a, in a megabyte? Well, a thousand. So that kind of chopping up is really useful. But if you want to see a Buddha, instead of chopping it ever smaller you reintegrate all the little pieces so that you bring back the discriminating mind and you let go of the need to know all the names one by one by one. The Bodhisattva has been doing that and when he says, living beings are numberless, I'm going to save them all, he lets go of the discriminating mind and goes beyond consciousness's ability to name and, name and form everything. At that point, with a wide open mind, he can see the integrated wholeness of consciousness, go beyond 
eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind consciousness and flip it over into another kind of wisdom. Consciousness goes to wisdom right there. So because of the bodhisattva's vows and the willingness to let go and say, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know how many Buddhas there are. I honestly don't know all the languages in the world. I maybe know one or two or three. Some people know 10 or 12 languages, but you're never going to know them all. Say, no, I let that go. I don't have to know. In fact, what I want to do is bring all my six senses back to a single point of my mind, or the concentrated mind, and let that go. Um, what are the... the um, there was a wonderful bumper sticker that my Christian friends had, let go and let God, right? Let go and let God. And that sounds really, you know, snazzy kind of bumper sticker quote, but the principle behind it, it's not that you let God do it, you still have to do it. The let go part is good. You let go and see Buddha. You're not let go and let God, you let go and see Buddha. So the Bodhisattva is here letting go of the need to know and be in charge and be number one, and Buddhas bit by bit appear. So that's my interpretation of how vows connect to seeing Buddhas. If we don't make great vows, we're still stuck in consciousness, and we can have fantastic memory, we can have clarity, we can have insight, we still won't be able to go beyond the me that needs to know. So the Bodhisattva uses vows to break open the dimensions of consciousness so that Buddhas appear, which is a state of wholeness, a state of integration. He sees lots of Buddhas. And then the sutra goes into this list of how many Buddhas he sees. How many? A lot. So wait, and now we'll tell you how many. For many hundreds. 800, 900, 999, and then you get to a thousand. You see thousands of Buddhas. How many thousands? 9,000, 9,999, and then you get out of the thousands into Bai Chen for hundreds of thousands. So you go up, right? 900,000, 999,999, and then you get into Bai Chen Yi, Nayota. So you get hundreds, thousands, hundred thousands, and then the sutra gives us a number that is many, many zeros. Lots of zeros. Hundred, many hundreds of thousands of ten million times a nayota. And a nayota is a Sanskrit numeral that has a name instead of zeros. A nayota means countless. So at that point, the decimal point just keeps moving to the right. Zero, 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 zero. All those Buddhas appear to the Bodhisattva. Now, people who've been um, paying attention to the text as we go will remember that at the first ground, the same thing happened. The Bodhisattva, at the end of the first ground, started to see Buddhas. At the end of the second ground, he saw more Buddhas. Now at the end of the third ground, she sees even more Buddhas. So this number keeps growing. It gets exponentially bigger as the Bodhisattva goes up through the grounds. And how do we explain that? It seems to me that as the Bodhisattva goes along, his mind gets 
clearer, sharper. Once ignorance retreats, it doesn't come back and coat the Bodhisattva's mind again. Once he or she is able to make that flip of small to great, of self to other, of me to us, of few to many or infinite, once that happens, it's just a question of gradually purifying, gradually transforming ignorance to wisdom. In everywhere, in every case, every time he sees a Buddha, he uses a big, guang means big this way, da means three dimensions. So it's a huge, monumental, xin mind. The Bodhisattva uses a monumental mind, shen xin, and a profound mind, not a superficial mind. Gong jing, zun zhong, chang shi, gong yang. To respect, to revere, to serve, and to make offerings to, to present things to, to give gifts to. Okay, I want to point to those for a minute. Um, this list, of, I think it's four things. Gong Jing is one, Zun Zhong is another, Cheng Shi is a third, Gong Yang is a fourth. These are things that Bodhisattvas do to Buddhas. They do in the presence of Buddhas. And this list comes back a lot. And so it's good for us to, to figure out what, what are these four actions that a Bodhisattva does. Because this is what we will do when we see many hundreds of thousands of millions of Nayutas of Buddhas. This is what Bodhisattvas... This is appropriate behavior for a Bodhisattva in the presence of a Buddha. What is it? Gong Jing Zun Zhong. The first is to respect. And how does a bodhisattva respect a Buddha? Probably bowing is one. Maybe palms together, this interesting religious gesture. Have you all seen the praying hands Catholic image, right? It's on online a lot. You can find it, especially at Christmas time or Easter. It's a picture of praying hands, and it looks very much like, you know, the Buddha's Hujang or Anjali in the Thai tradition. But it's a Catholic image, and there's a rosary with a cross on it, and it's a perfect Hujang. And if you see Indian, Nepali, Tibetan people, right, the Indian uh, Namaste is usually accompanied by this, and it's pretty much straight up like this. The, uh, the Chinese, Japanese, Korean method is pretty much like this, right? And then there's that Tibetan thing where they include one of these, too, you know? So, like that. I don't... Does that have any particular significance, Richard, being up top like that? Did they say anything about that? Yeah, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just that people ask, why do we do this? You know, our style. And Scherfer would say, it's an adornment. Meaning, don't ask. Right? It's a style, you say. We, we do our half bow and then we do this. It's called the Vairochana Mudra. And I'm not transmitting it. Don't anybody say, wow, we got a Dharma transmission from the monk tonight. Hung Scherfer gave us this time. I don't know what it is. It's, it's this. <laughs> Just like that, like that, 
They start with their fingers, right? Put them there, touch, thumbs behind, and you, after you do the half bow, so you've done three bows and a half bow, we finish like that. Okay? And it's called the Pilu Jana Yin, the Vairochana Mudra. And if you've seen Vairochana Buddha, one of his teaching mudras is like this. He's got his finger holding. So that's, that's the way we do it. And other Mahayana schools do not. So why do the, in the secret school we say do this? It's a style. It's it's called the bai they go bai hao shangguang between the eyebrows yeah and you don't bang yourself you know and you don't it's not like a you know yes sir it's not that it, you just kind of it's like that and if if you have to ask why your answer is as good as mine you know it's like make a, make up an answer you know the answer is it's a style and it's mudras there I'm sure now I don't want to sound too flippant I honestly don't. Know. And probably if you dug into the Tripitaka, you could find an explanation somewhere. It's one of those items that's passed along in the tradition, kind of like 108. Why 108? I've heard a couple dozen explanations. And they're probably all as good as any other. It's a magic number. So we, we do the Pilu Yin. So, as the Bodhisattva respects the Buddha, probably he puts his palms together like this, he does the mudra, might bear his shoulder in respect if he's a left-home person, monastic. That's a gesture of respect. So that's kung jing. There are many ways. The, probably the basic one that is common to all Buddhist traditions and many religions is a bow. You take what is the highest point of your body, when you're awake, this is whether you're standing, sitting, walking, this is the high part of your body, and you put it down at the Buddha's feet. You put it at the lowest part of the Buddha's body. And that's significant. It's called dingli. You we sometimes translate it as bow with the crown of the head. You pay reverence with the topmost part of your body. And uh it's that's not simple. We, I didn't start out bowing. I, I belong to that group of Northern European Protestants that don't bow. We're called stiff-necked people in the Bible, right? Stiff-necked people. What do we do? What do Christians do? Let us bow our heads. That's it. That's as far as we go. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. You know, we don't bow. Every other religious tradition, with very, very few exceptions, has some form of bowing. Even Roman Catholics. They genuflect. They bow. There's every kind of gesture in Roman Catholicism. Jews daven. Right? There's lots of bowing when you pray in Judaism. In some of the, some of the sects of Judaism, there's davening. And you bend at the waist and... It may not be connected to bowing, but there's something to it. You lower, it's, it's rhythmic, it's very beautiful. Hindus bow. Muslims absolutely bow when they're doing their, their salam and uh, salat. Every tradition except those stiff-necked people from the northern part of the European continent, we bow our heads in prayer. That's it, right? 
So Gong Jing uh, is in the Samantabhadra Bodhisattva says, Li Jing Zhu Fo, Yi Zhe Li Jing Zhu Fo. The first is to bow and respect to all Buddhas. So I think Gong Jing means externally you show respect. Zun Zhong, number two, is inner. It's an inner experience. And that has to do with reverence. So not only do you show the gestures of respect, but you actually, in your heart, you feel that sense of, um, what is it? What, what is that experience? My guess is if an arhat walked in the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery tonight, uh, we would probably take one look at him and all want to bow immediately. This person would be shedding light, right? They've ended birth and death. Desire is over for them. They are pure in blessings and in wisdom. We would probably just, oh, you know, my goodness. And another, another thing is they would probably look radiant. They would look magnificent. The adorned is, that's a funny word. They would be, we don't say beautiful, but you know the point. Physically, they would be just perfect. The Buddha, as just as a person, had these hallmarks, these 32 distinguishing hallmarks that made him look like, number one, a champion athlete, number two, like uh, a movie star, only not with makeup movie star, you know, that kind of perfect harmony of features. And, and every, they describe among the 32 hallmarks is every one of the, the places in the body that should be round and full are round and full. Every place that should be convex and concave, perfect. The Buddha was perfect in his form. And we would go, I've never seen anybody who looks so good before. Can I get to get close to you? You know, think who in your life, has there ever been anybody in your life who when you saw them in your heart, you were motivated to get closer, to ask a question, to listen to, to kind of look at a lot? They say Ananda, right, the Buddha's own cousin, was the most handsome of all the Buddha's disciples. And yet he only wanted to serve his older cousin. He wanted to, to get close to the Buddha more than anything else. And so he became the Buddha's attendant. You see, Ananda was just so struck by the Buddha's physical appearance that he said, I, you know, can I uh, hold your robe? You know, can I wash your bowl? Can I uh, sit behind you and take notes of when you talk? You know? He just really wanted to absorb everything about the Buddha because he just thought he was the best thing he'd ever seen. Right? No kidding. This, he's like so impressed. So something like that would be the sense of reverence. And you know that that's what the eyes see. But they say the number one thing about the Buddha was his virtue. And the Buddha's virtue, you see it in light. 
they say when the when the Buddha nature is uncovered bit by bit, it shines. And we hear Gong De Guang, you know, the light of virtue. And what is that? And we surefully occasionally would say, Master Shrinha would say, virtue is just a light. It's a radiance, it's a light. And it doesn't come from anywhere. It doesn't turn on and off. You don't push a button to get that light. It's not a switch, not batteries or AC, DC. It's our Buddha nature uncovered. So what the practice of cultivation is, is a gradual uncovering of something that is fundamentally bright. And the Sharangama Sutra is always talking about the, the uncreated, infinite, brilliant light of our self-nature. It didn't have to be made. Mostly we cover it. It's already there, but we cover it up. So the Buddha has uncovered it fully, completely. And when we see him, it's like, bang, this radiance. What word do we use in, in the world? We say charisma. Somebody's got charisma. Uh, in Chinese, you say li. This person's kind of uh, hypnotic quality, a sense of magnetism. Uh, sometimes they say animal magnetism. Is that the same as virtues light? Eh, maybe, maybe not. Um, movie stars can seem to shine by skillful use of makeup and lights. Anybody who's in theater knows how you can get all kinds of effects with powder, rouge, uh, color, paint, and then light. You can make people age, you can make them younger, you can make them appear heavier or thinner, you know, and it's all done with external, it's on the skin. But the Buddha's virtue radiance, that charisma comes from inside. And it's from having less, not more. You don't add a thing to have this Buddha's radiance. You get rid of what covers our nature. So when you see that and you feel it, I don't know if you see that light, you more feel it because it touches your skin. It touches your the cones of colored receptors inside your retina, you know. Boom. You you just you're hit with this radiance and you feel sunjong deep reverence. This is someone I want to get near and learn from. Whatever you got, I want to learn it, absorb it, draw near to it. So, third, shi. What is that? It, it's service. And we know that service, we have a kind of an image what that means. Um, it means do things with or do things for, to help out, to be of service to someone, to um, interact with that person in a way that makes their life more, what, uh, comfortable, pleasant, convenient. I mentioned Ananda, and Ananda was the Buddha's attendant for, for a couple of decades, and he would uh, sweep out the Buddha's uh, Lodging, he would, you know, wash the Buddha's bowl, carry things for him, remember the things he said. What kind of service is that to, to listen to somebody carefully? 
And those are the kind of you think service. I am, you know, we're a uh, what do we say? Service industries, meaning laundry, barber shops, um, car repair, that kind of thing. We think about externals. But what if we lived in service to our family members? What would it mean to be a good listener? Profound service. To just let the other person's story stand without trying to top it. Right? How many times do we immediately come up with a better story when, when somebody's relating something? You want, oh yeah, and let me tell you about the time that I, you know, instead of just letting that person's story stand for a while and honoring it. Wow. What an experience. How did you feel about that when it happened? Oh, oh, well, yeah, I, uh, I felt these, you know, giving the person the chance to be the star, to be in the spotlight without having to immediately top the story uh, or worse, to put it down or to laugh or make fun of somebody. If we just simply let our brothers and sisters, even the little brothers and sisters, maybe especially our didis and our maimes, let them be the center for a while without being the gugu and the jie and have to be number one all the time. What an amazing kind of service that is to let the juniors grow and, and feel the, the warmth of the spotlight for a while. That's, and, and then, of course, the same, then you go, well, well, tell me about it. What did you think about that movie that you saw? Or when you you know, got a got an A in class. What was it like? Probe a little bit. Let them go deeper with it. What a wonderful thing that is to be in service that way. Not necessarily emptying bedpans or service, but just being kind. That's incredible service that we just too often go right by. Um... Some people serve by paying bridge tolls for the car behind them. Right? And when the next car comes by, you, the, the plaza guy says, you're already paid for. Now that doesn't work if they have a fast track. If they have a fast track, oh no, you paid double. Because no. you can't tell your fast track, don't record this trip. You know, so. But that's... Uh, it never fails to make somebody's day better when some anonymous person, you know, just smile card tags them. You all know the former charity focus, now called service space. They had their famous smile cards. The smile cards are these, they're the, the smiley face. Yes, it is. But it's a little card. We have used to have a bunch of them here on, on the counter. Occasionally they show up again. And you do a good deed for somebody and add a smile card. And it says, you've been tagged. Please pay it forward. Please return the good deed to someone else. And that it's rare if you've been tagged that it doesn't make that day special in the flow of days. Somebody pays for your meal. Somebody uh, gets there before you and picks up the check. And you realize that you've just been treated. And there's, there's a smile card. You know, So little favors to people that then you realize that you've been served and there's a chance for you to serve. 
So the Bodhisattva, he's got the Buddha to serve. Now, do the Buddhas need service? No. They put in ascetic practice for so many lifetimes. They're used to having it tough. Being a Buddha is not easy. It's tough being a Buddha. The stuff you have to put up with. Uh, watching your disciples go wrong over and over again with ignorance just covering over their good natures. Uh, the Buddha had another cousin who tried to kill him repeatedly, tried to destroy him, destroy his reputation, Devadatta. So being a Buddha is not a bowl of cherries, apparently. And yet, you know, those still, the service is not for the Buddha, it's for the one who serves. That's really central to understanding what this is about. The respect, the reverence, the service, and the offerings are all for somebody who doesn't need respect, reverence, service, or offerings. So because the Bodhisattva volunteers to offer these things, this respect and service and gifts, it's he who plants the field of blessing. And that's, that's always a funny one to flip over. It's just like precepts. You know, you think, oh, no killing, no stealing, no lust, no adultery, no lies, no intoxicants. Well, that's good for the beings who don't get killed, stolen from, cheated on, lied to, and drunk. But in fact, it's the holder of the precepts who gets the benefit by not killing, stealing, lusting, lying, and drugging. So it's, it's an interesting relationship that you enter into when it's the Buddha who you're respecting. As Master Qingliang Chengguan would say, that when you show respect, you deepen your own roots of goodness. And your self-respect grows. Jerry? So it's, there's, it's reciprocal. It's a relationship that happens as you do these things. And you, the doer of the respect, gain a huge amount by offering the respect. So it's really a relationship that you set up with this field of blessings. So the Bodhisattva respects, reveres, serves, puts himself in relationship to do things for. And the last one is gongyang. This gongyang is, uh, what an interesting idea this is. This is so um, such a, a different way of looking at a relationship than what I grew up with. Um, stuff, giving stuff, happened on birthdays and Christmas. And when it was my dad's birthday, it was a tie. You gave him a tie. When it was my mother's birthday, you gave her like a scarf or chocolates. You know, it's kind of a, it was a ritual transaction. You know, you go and, you, okay, happy birthday, mom. Oh, you shouldn't have been so, thank you, so thoughtful. You know, it's chocolates. You know, <laughs> Mother's Day. Okay, we give stuff. It's not, it's, you know, there was very little thought in it. It was kind of, I didn't get that idea that, that um, there was a reason. There was, there was something going on. And my mom, she was so thrilled. I mean, it wasn't phony on her part. It was just insincere on my part. But my mom, I felt, was genuinely happy that her son remembered her with a box of chocolates. And my dad, with a tie, 
How many ties did my dad have? A drawer full of ties, you know. Here you go, Dad. Happy birthday. You know, oh, yeah, that's, uh, that looks really nice. Yeah, in the drawer. <laughs> there you go. Okay, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, nice. You know, guys. And, uh, so when you offer to the Buddha, look at, look at what it says. The sutra specifies what the bodhisattva gives to the Buddhas, Buddha or Buddhas. And here's the bodhisattva who's very close to being, he's a third stage bodhisattva, and he's, he, he'll be a Buddha before long, and yet here he or she is offering robes, food and drink, bedding, which could be a sleeping bag or it could be a, a tarp house, and medicine. And each zisheng Whatever, it says, all kinds of needs, all kinds of things that foster life. That's what the Bodhisattva gives to the Buddhas. And to the Buddha, does the Buddha want robes, food and drink, bedding and medicine? Well, actually, yeah. Inasmuch as the Buddha has a body that is still alive that needs to wear clothes, needs to eat food, needs to sleep somewhere, and needs medicine when he was sick, and the Buddha did have episodes of discomfort. He was had headaches and things. So yeah, those are needed. On the other hand, the Buddha would do fine without them. It's that the Bodhisattva wants to establish this relationship with the source of wisdom and compassion, and so he offers him things that he needs. Those four things, everybody check that list, clothes, food, bedding, medicine. Those are called in in the Chinese tradition, the four kinds of traditional offerings, the four kinds of requisites, the four requisites. In the Pali tradition, they say the four requisites. What is it? This is a really interesting list. Check this out. What is the minimum to sustain your life? What do we need so we don't die of lack? Here's the list. This is it. We need food and drink to sustain the body. We need clothes, different seasons, sometimes warmer clothes and when it's cool, sometimes cooler clothes when it's hot. We need things to cover our bodies unless we can sleep out exposed to the elements, which is hard. And we need medicine when we're sick to keep us... Air. Air. We need air. But clean air, not just air. We need clean... That then Beijing doesn't count. right? <laughs> Shanghai doesn't count. Uh, we need that. Correct. Some people would say we need Wi-Fi. It is a requisite. Talk better, more than air. Boy, have you ever been in a room with a bunch of computer geeks? There's no air in that room. That smell of ozone, you know, locked in that room with a server and all that, the positive ions coming out that you don't, don't need the air, but you've got to have Wi-Fi. Boy, as soon as the power goes, hey, I've, I got booted offline, hey. So uh, the, the Buddha and monks and nuns need these four to live. I think this is really interesting, because why? We say sustainable, 
And yet America uses like this incredibly huge oversized surplus of the world's resources to sustain our lives. And we'd come out take it as our share that the world's resources, wood, water, coal, electricity, minerals, all that is our share. Um, in fact, that's not true. In order to sustain our lives, when you boil it right down, what do we actually need? If you're sick and you don't have medicine, you suffer. If you're hungry and you don't have food, you suffer. Right? Thirsty and you don't drink, you die sooner. You can do without food for up to some people 72 days, but uh, you can't do without water. And if you have to sleep under the elements, it's hard, right? Think, you ever look at the situation of a homeless person who's actually on the streets, especially in Berkeley where it tends to get down to the 50s at night? Boy, if you have to sleep on a concrete sidewalk, I, whenever I go outside, especially after the sunset, I think I am so glad that as a homeless left home person, I have a roof over my head. If I had to sleep on Berkeley concrete at night, I would get sick really fast. You know? And so those are the requisites. Those are the basics. And in a world where many people, particularly Americans, abuse and waste material things, it's really wholesome to look at the Buddha's prescription for what are the basics. And my mother's generation that went through the Great Depression had a mantra You've heard me say it before. What is it? Use it up, wear it out. Make it do or do without. How's that again? Use it up, right? Don't throw it away before it's all gone. Toothpaste, that latte, the bottom of the cup, paper, Kleenexes, napkins, paper towels. We went through this last week because... There's a group that comes in here Thursday night, and I was in the bathroom washing my hands when this guy in front of me, who just washed his hands, pulled down six paper towels like this. Pull, 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 pull. Walked out with his hands kind of dry. And there in the wastebasket was one semi-wet towel and five dry towels. And he mindlessly had just gone pull, 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 pull. And some of you paid for those towels at Costco. You know, and he could have used one and his hands would have been dry. He didn't even, he walked out with his hands, he, he wiped them on his pants after having pulled them all down, you know, and I'm looking at this. I was going to, sir, and I thought, no. You know, where do you start? You know. So that's not our share. You know, what do we really need is the question. And <clears throat> the Buddha said, you need to feed, your, feed and drink your body lubricate it. You need to keep your body warm and cold appropriately. You need a place to sleep under cover. And when you're sick, you need the appropriate medicine to get rid of the illness. That's the basic. There may be a time when, if we don't use it up, wear it out, means use it until it's gone, make it do, meaning stretch it a bit, or you know what? Soon there will be a day when we don't have any You'll do without. That came in an era when my mom, and I told this story before, my mom said, 
She never had her own dress until she was a senior in high school. Why? She was the youngest of four sisters, right? Three sisters and two brothers. She always wore what were called, what's the word? Hand-me-downs, right? Yeah. Her mom, my mother, my grandmother, made it do. My mother was the youngest. She didn't get a new dress. She got her sister's dresses. What was the word? They uh, turned them in. You turn it inside out. You, you re-hem it. You stitch it. You add to it. You cut it. You trim it. My mother was, what, 16 years old, 17 years old, before she got her own new dress for the first time. What a deal, right? How many hand-me-down clothes do you wear? Well, brand names, Dharma Master, or... Uh, <laughs> We recycle our Gucci's, you know, <laughs> Manolo Blahniks. We recycle those. You know. So, yeah, use it up, wear it out. Use it until you can't use it anymore. Make it do, or guess what? There isn't another one. You'll do without. That's sustainable, right? We live in a waste culture. So the Buddha says, yeah, it's okay. It's not the case that you have to feel guilty if you have food and drink and clothes and bedding and medicine. Just recognize what's essential and what is surplus. Recognize what is waste, right? And then essentially an insult to the earth. Um, one example would be meat eating. Why? We are true. Some people would say omnivores. We can eat anything. Omni, right? All kinds of food we can put in our mouths, even though if you want to say what's the appropriate food for humans, look at your incisors, right? Look at our fangs right here. Are these good at puncturing zebra skin? <laughs> Meanwhile, the zebra's, dude, you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know I, can't, I can't get through the zebra skin. I can barely get through my own. <laughs> You know, this is not good at puncturing flesh. Not. But if you give me some grains and nuts and berries, I can grind them. The grinders, right? Not the incisors, but the grinders. These are really good. Ruminants, cows. Cows, jaw. You know, they're made for grass. and They do that. So do these. So we are omnivores. We can eat meat. But here's another one. Here's another biological determinant of diet, right? Make it do, do without. Use it up, wear it out. Make it do, do without. What is the appropriate food for the human body? Something that doesn't putrefy in the intestines. What would that be? Mm, you look at the intestines of carnivores, big cats. How long is the large intestine of a lion? About three feet. So the meat that goes in, lions are carnivores. There aren't that many vegetarian lions. I know a few, but they're not, they're not common. Carnivores eat meat and excrete it really quickly. Because why? what happens to hamburger on the counter? You leave hamburger on the counter for two nights, you don't want to eat it. It's, the smell says, that's not good for you. It's already rotted. Well, how long is the intestinal tract of the human being? 21 feet. Inside you, coiled up very neatly, is 21 feet of passageway. 
The same meat goes down there, two days later, it's still there. Guess what happens? It putrefies, because it's very warm down there. Lots of bacteria. And if it doesn't come out, what happens is colon cancer, stomach cancer, esophageal cancer. And then, never mind the stuff that comes out into the system, but just that simple fact that meat has to get out of the body quick. Well, carnivores, with the big, the puncher teeth, good for going through zebra hide, their intestinal tracts are this long. Out it goes, really fast. Plus, cats have this really acidic digestive tract. That's why if cats get in the garden, it's not good to let them pee in the garden, right? Cat urine is extremely acidic because it's meant to dissolve that meat really fast. Okay, things you didn't know you were going to hear this when you came here tonight, did you? <laughs> right, aren't you glad you came? Man, rare facts. Cat urine in the garden. Yeah. So, that's gardeners don't like cats for that reason. So, anyway, so you say, what is sustainable? Eat a diet that does your body good, and it's not cow's milk. Cow's milk is good for baby cows. When did you stop nursing at your mother's breast? Well, why pick up on the cow's breast? Three glasses a day, not, you know. Eat food that suits us and that is sustainably produced, and we do fine, we thrive on it, so does the planet. So that has to do with service, right? What is the appropriate offering? Look at the actual function of the organism, not at the tongue desire, which is a lot of, drives a lot of our choices. So, not to preach, I didn't mean to preach tonight. However, when you look at these four kinds of offerings, it brings up this notion of what is really sustainable? What can the planet bear? Um, they, what are we now, 7.2 billion population on the planet? Anybody got your Google browser secretly open? Close it. No, no. If you have it, I think the total population of the Earth is 7.2 billion, something like that, heading for 9 billion by 2020. We're going to like add a huge, huge number of passengers on this spaceship, Earth, very quickly. And if we continue to eat high on the food chain the way the Chinese are just now discovering, what was it? What did we see last week? It was the the meat consumption of China is double that of the U.S. now per capita. Was that, that was it, right? You recall? I believe so. We were talking about that at lunch. Double the per capita consumption of meat by the average Chinese is now twice that of the U.S. Check me on that statistic, but that's what I read last week. China is very quickly going high up on the food chain. The meat that the Chinese are eating requires just as much grain, water, shipping, etc., as meat in the U.S. So, unsustainable. We're going to run out. So the Buddha says, here's the question, what is need versus what is greed? If we can answer for ourselves the difference between greed and need, we're going to be closer to the four kinds of offerings. Food and drink, clothing, bedding or shelter, and medicine. Closer to answering for ourselves. And not everybody has the same answer. You know, uh, 
the answer to the question is, what do I really need? And the Buddha said, if you have these four, not only do you get through the day just fine, but your spirits are set free. That's the other thing to, to really make clear. If you think about and the Buddha was not into saying, if you have more than this, if you drive and own three cars, you're bad. No, that's not, that's not the point of this, is to make people who have more than these basics feel guilty or somehow, uh, what do you say, worse than people who cut it down to the basics? No, that's not the Buddha's point. Everybody has a different set of blessings. It's good to share it's good to look at what we consume and say, maybe I could do better with less. Or actually, I know I have too much stuff and I want to think of a creative way to, to share it. That's, that's wholesome. That's good to look at our possessions and our consumption and say, where could I cut back that would make my spirit soar? The point that the Buddha is making is that if we find the middle way between greed and need and give ourselves enough to sustain our lives, there is an immediate payback in freedom of our spirit. And if we can take that sense of sustainability and turn it into giving, there's even more than a sense of freedom. There's a sense of joy in sharing what we have. The Sangha members who I know who have willingly, joyfully let go of stuff are some of the lightest hearted people on the planet. It's not the case that by cutting back we deprive ourselves and we become in want not a bit. The people I know who live lightly on the earth tend to have a sense of connection with other people and a sense of joy that no material possession can buy, can replace. And you know what I'm talking about. It's really true that if we can do with less, that emptiness that's there where all the stuff used to be does not lead to a sense of need and want. Instead, it leads to a sense of fullness and connection with the other beings on the planet, if we see it that way. And then if we can further take that sense of stuff and give it, then that emptiness fills with joy. Because as the Chinese say, even in the ordinary cliche, it's zhu ren shi kuai le jiban. Helping others is a source of happiness. So giving is a source of joy. Every parent knows that on Christmas, on Hanukkah, on birthdays. The parents are the happy ones. When they see the kid light up, when they get the bicycle they really wanted. So this is, I think, what the Buddha means when he's telling us that these are the four basics. These are the things that actually sustain. It's not that he wants us to like be deprived. And those Buddhists, they're always looking kind of like hollow-eyed and sad because they didn't get the good stuff. 
No, I think it's that the Buddha wants his disciples to thrive and be rich in spirit. To sustain the body in the middle way, but to actually make every gift, every interaction, a chance to feel that happiness that comes from taking the good stuff and passing it on. So these are all the questions that come up at this. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating notion. And giving in the sutras comes up over and over. How come these bodhisattvas spend so much time making offerings, giving, gongyang? What's that about? It's the first practice of all Buddhas. First step on the bodhisattva path is giving. So and what is it? Four things. It's clothes, food and drink, bedding and shelter, and medicine when you're sick. Everything that you need to sustain your life. And he gives those to all the Buddhas, says the Bodhisattva. And he gives this to the Sangha too. The Buddha is a left home monastic. right? The Buddha is the, the first of the Sangha. The first left home person in his Sangha. And then the monks and nuns follow. Okay, that's the f- giving with form. Not done yet. The Bodhisattva takes all the good stuff that comes from giving like this and gives it again. There's a second kind of giving here. What kind of giving is that? It's giving with the mind. It's taking all the invisible good stuff that comes from giving and giving that away again by transference, dedication. You give it away. And this is, again, wow, this is such a deep topic and so profound that there's a whole chapter in the Avatamsaka Sutra called the Ten Transferences where the Bodhisattva goes into profound detail about giving with the mind. It's called the giving of Dharma. And you give it away. What is it the Bodhisattva gives? Well, we might say good vibes. He gives, she gives the wholesome qualities, that good feeling that comes from giving, giving that away, all the goodness. Uh, The sutra talks about how many kinds of giving the Bodhisattva would do. Master Shrenhua would be lecturing on the sutras. He would explain, and then he would stop, and he would look to the translator, he would say, translate into English for all that. So the translator would start up, and what would Shrifu do? He'd be sitting on his Dharma seat, and Shrifu would be sitting and sometimes doing mudras, sometimes doing things, and then he would sometimes put his palms together, and he would seem to be reciting. And, you know, what was he doing? I don't know. Shrifu was doing what Shrifu did. He was doing his work, some sort of... He would recite, and then he would, and then he would go back and lecture. And this was a pattern. And he would use that time in between lecturing, when the translation was happening, five minutes, ten minutes, to do whatever Sherpa would do. And I had the impression that he was transferring merit. And people would say later, you know, I was in Hong Kong, and... Uh, I was, you know, like, had this fever. 
And right in the middle of my fever, it's sure who appeared at the foot of my bed. And I had this, this wonderful sense of coolness. And, and I lost all the fear. I wasn't afraid anymore. And it's like I felt calm. And they would say, oh, yeah, when was that? Well, it was like last night or this morning at, at 10 a.m. Where was Sherpa? Well, Sherpa was lecturing on the Dharma seat right then. In America, 10 a.m. in Taiwan, we go, how could Sherpa be at the foot of your bed when he was sitting beside us in San Francisco's Buddhist, you know, Buddhist lecture hall, Gold Mountain Monastery? Gee, I don't know how Sherpa could do that. But we would hear these stories. And sometimes... Uh, people would would be uh, you know be unable to translate. I never studied these words before, and as Sherpa was translate would was sitting there reciting or whatever, you, suddenly you get this kind of sense of oh and oh I see what it means, and you translate way beyond your ability to translate. Where I don't even know these, and you could do it. There was this wind that kind of came along and filled your mind, and you could translate. What was going on? Well, it's mysterious. You might even say it's magic. But it happened. How could American hippies, college students, who had studied Chinese for a year and a half, suddenly be able to take this explanation in Manchurian Chinese and render it into English so people would go, oh, you know, Sherpa would say, oh, you're, just be sincere. That's all it takes is sincerity and a willingness and a vow to help others and you'll be able to do things you couldn't do before. And we go, wow, that's amazing. What is, was Sherfu transferring merit to us? Maybe. Maybe that's what it was. But it was certainly uh, beyond, we would say the word that we used over and over again at Gold Mountain was inconceivable. How did that happen? Maybe it happened because a good advisor was transferring the merit. That was one available explanation. Is that really what was going on? I don't know. But I sure felt it. So funny. When you transfer the merit, it's very powerful. What do they say in other realms? They say the power of prayer. You remember the... um, the experiments that happened about a decade ago, um, they would take patients in a hospital and there would be, you know, uh, 40 cancer patients and 20 of them would have nobody praying for them and 20 of them would have people praying for them and they would get the nurses and the volunteers and the chaplains to, to pray for certain number of people and then check their progress and the people who were prayed for would recover quicker they said and then there would be a study that would say oh that was totally non-scientific how do you judge something as ephemeral as prayer there was as many critics of these experiments as there were uh, as there were experimenters and, and subjects but most religious people I know would say absolutely People who get prayed for heal faster. Prayer works, they would say. And there are many, many people who utterly, totally believe in the power of prayer as a healing force. So what's going on? Eh, It's mysterious, isn't it? But you just know that the human mind is probably the strongest thing 
on the planet. For example, um, people make a vow and that in life after life something will happen and they come back and for no reason whatsoever at a certain age they remember and they want to go do something, right? Bullets can kill you, but they can't kill your ideas. That's why uh, dictators and tyrants are more afraid of poets than they are of generals. Right? A poet with an idea can move a country towards the good, whereas a general with all his military might cannot intimidate somebody whose heart is fixed on good. That's where patriots come from. That's where martyrs come from. That's where heroes come from. It's the power of the mind, right? So the mind is, when it's concentrated, is absolutely the most powerful thing in the world. Concentrated on, a, on goodness, concentrated on evil. How could a guy like Adolf Hitler create so much evil that five million people died as a result of his particular way of thinking? And yet... We remember poets and songwriters because they moved us, artists. We remember them. So the power of the mind is huge. The Bodhisattva uses that mind to give the good stuff to other people. I would now like to take all of the merit and virtue from having done this good deed, in this case giving, serving, respecting and revering Buddhas. I'd like to share it with all living beings with the wish that fill in the blank, whatever that bodhisattva's vow is. And he gives it away. Another way to think about this is that minds touch each other. Where does my mind stop and your mind start? And the answer is, wherever light meets light, which is basically everywhere. Our minds really do touch each other. There's nowhere where they don't. And to think otherwise is, to, I think, not see it the way it really is. I think that's wrong. So, because of that intimate connection between minds, use it like a radio tower sends out a signal. All you have to do is turn on your radio and you can pick up KQED 88.5, right, if you choose to. And likewise, if my mind is used positively, wholesomely, as a broadcast tower of goodness, everybody will pick it up within a certain frequency and radiance towards the good, towards the bad, the same. If you are determined to hate everybody and send out negative vibes, I definitely know it. I pick it up as soon as that thought moves. So that being the case, why not use our minds as a source of goodness and well-being and thought after thought transfer merit and virtue? The Bodhisattva does this and makes these wishes. The Ten Transferences chapter in the Avatamsaka is thousands of good wishes. You get to see how Bodhisattvas transfer in thought after thought. So, what does our Bodhisattva transfer to? Anotolo Samyao Samputi. He transfers with the wish that all beings wake up to the Buddha's ultimate awakening. Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi is the Buddha's own awakening to the unsurpassed, right, equal, Proper enlightenment, 
the real awakening of the Buddha. Yu qi fo so gong jing ting fa wen yi shou chi sui li shou xing. Then this passage tonight ends with this sentence. Where those Buddhas are, the Bodhisattva reverently listens to the Dharma, hears it, puts it into practice as he or she is able. So, how neat. Here at the end of the third transference, our Bodhisattva sees the Buddhas and then goes to where they are, reveres, respects, serves, makes offerings to not only the four requisites, but then transfers the good stuff, does that second kind of practice called transference, dedication of merit, and gets a gift from the Buddhas, which is the Dharma. He hears it, puts it into practice, and then goes and does what the Dharma tells him. That's the third grand Bodhisattva. Okay. This, this scene is repeated over and over and over throughout the Avatamsaka. Interesting pattern. And that portion about giving is really central. When you, when you read Bodhisattva stories, the giving part is really essential, fundamental. And that never would occur to me. You don't hear about the Gosti, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four apostles making offerings to Jesus and, and revering. I mean, they do, but it's not like prescribed as a practice. And yet here, this is so important. They wash his feet. They prepare tables for him, things like that. So... Maybe, maybe the gospel. Maybe that's actually a place where you can see that kind of behavior. I probably should revise that. It'd be interesting to read the gospels with a sense of how the how the apostles Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John serve Jesus. Whether they respect him, bow to him, etc. Somebody want that for a master's degree? You can use write that as your master's thesis. Buddhist practices interpreted through the gospels, right? Give me a footnote if you want. Thank Dharma Master for suggesting. All right. Let us practice our own dedication to merit, our own transference. Uh, It's on the um, ceremony sheet in front of you. Yes. Yes. Oh, really good question. So the question is, the transference to Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, is it like, can only Bodhisattvas do it, permitted to? No, uh-uh. I don't think so. Although the Bodhisattva probably has a clue about what it is. I mean, you can, right this minute, say, I'd like to transfer all of the merit that comes from listening to this sutra lecture, to being here with wholesome friends in a pure place, um, all of that merit I give with the wish that all living beings accomplish the Buddha's awakening. And you've done it. Same thing. So, go for it. It's just, what, what do you want to have happen as a result of your gift of merit? 
you're free to make that anything you want. You know, I transfer with the wish that all beings quickly wake up. So, however you want to do it, please make that wish now. This is the chance. talking about what it would be like if a sage walked in and we could see that charisma, we could see the, the light of the Buddha, his nature, and how would we feel? Would we feel respect in our hearts? Please turn to page 12. Page 12, you have that songbook in front of you, this one right here. There we go. And if you don't have one, maybe you could share with your neighbor. This is uh, an attempt to to kind of give a sense of the Buddha. Just writing about his qualities. And the first verse, upon the earth below the sky, and the last verse, I've searched throughout this whole wide world, is in the Chinese tradition. This is the, um, the verse that we have 
on Buddha's birthday, Tian Shang Tian Xia Wu Ru Fo. We recite this on Buddha's birthday, the Wesak, that, that day. And it's such a good praise that we ought to do it more often. But it's only um, those few lines, and so I added three more. The Buddha's gone beyond duality. He's never born again. With wisdom bright, he blesses me. He knows my joy and pain. He walked the noble middle way with strength and purity. In dark of night and light of day, his kindness touches me. If we didn't have any other quality to remark the Buddha by, it would be his kindness. You just have the sense of this person means no harm. I'm safe around the Buddha, right? I'm safe here. He knows my secrets and he's not going to bust me. He's not judging me. He's not divine, that's to say he's not a god, but he's not, he is awake instead. He's neither come nor gone. He's the Tathagata, the Sugata, the one who's well gone, well come. I find him in each blade of grass. He is the wisdom son. I've searched around this whole wide world, and now I can declare, you will never find a wiser one than Buddha anywhere. We'll do that, those last two lines again at the end. Here we go. Amazing Grace, you all know it. Sing along. You thought this camera was only photographing me. It's got all of you. If you don't sing, we will know.
guitar part. Last verse. I searched around this So, we needed an expert opinion, so we'll ask an expert. offerings, you know. You should do it a lot. Do you, do you still make offerings to the Buddha? Oh, yeah. All the time. Well, what's an appropriate offering from a bodhisattva? Well, living beings, for one. Mostly anything I get, uh, I give to the Buddha first. Really? Yeah. Such as, oh, where I live, you know, there's not a lot of good water to drink, so when I get some water, I offer it with my mind to the Buddha first and just think, hope the Buddha has plenty of water. How good it tastes when you're thirsty. That's it? Yeah. What do you think? Million dollars? No, no. Simple stuff. Simple stuff's good. But you just give it with your heart, you know. Gratitude, that kind of stuff. Mm. Like happiness to be alive, you know. That's a good offering. Doesn't have to be money. Poor people make some of the best offerings. Right? Middle class people? Yeah. Rich people? Of course. Of course, it depends on your mind. So uh, anyway, all of you out there... uh, you want to make an offering to the Buddha? Try getting angry less. That works. Yeah, yeah good. So, uh, you know, you can be really creative with your offerings. Uh, one fewer hell thought makes my life much easier. So, you know, like, treat your spouse like a Buddha. My life uh, improves. Makes my day. Because you know why? 
I won't be seeing you. True. Be kind to your husband, your wife, your kids, and uh, you'll never have to be saved by me. So, uh, Erstor Bodhisattva, is that right? Yeah. Where do you live? You don't want to know. It's not a very nice neighborhood. There's been no development down there for eons, you know. It's hot. Yeah, a lot of noise, despair, you know. So uh, be cheerful and happy. That's the best kind of offering. Just every thought, every sip of water, give it to the Buddhist person. There you go. That's it, huh? Yeah, that's how I make offerings. Wow, thanks. First door bodhisattva. Yeah, what do you think you were going to hear tonight? Well, stories of the hills? Nah. I teach the heavens, too. Make your mind pure, you're there. Okay, I won't say, see you later. <laughs> Bye. I won't see you later. Bye-bye. Wow, an expert in giving. Who knew? Great. I'm sure they're glad they came to the monastery tonight.